I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. This week, it's all about the UK. I've been looking at how the FTSE 100 is getting on against the S&P 500, and we've got the good, the bad, and the ugly of UK stocks. But first things first, Steve D's with me. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hey, Steve. Uh, not too bad. Um, for those of you watching um, uh, watching on YouTube or watching on Spotify now, um, you're probably about to see many pictures of a kitten I have just gone and picked up on uh, Monday night. She's called Luna, the newest addition to the family. Stocks-wise, Steve, which is what probably people are mostly listening to, and sorry not to upstage you knowing your due date is very, very soon. <laughs> they could be, they could potentially be the, uh, a baby, uh, <laughs> doctor baby. <laughs> <laughs> but but let's see, Sunday's a long way away, it's Wednesday today. Stock-wise, we've had a really, really good day because we've had some uh, yeah, inflation figures which we either expected or didn't expect. Um, depending on what your uh, your position was on how far the Fed were going to hike. I personally thought 0.5, so 0.75 to me, I was like, oh, here we go. This could be a bit of a dangerous day, but it's uh, it's ended up being quite positive. So uh, last week, I spoiled it by saying I was feeling cheery, but Steve, I'm feeling cheery. How about you? Well, I'm, I'm now feeling completely overwhelmed. The reason I do this podcast is so I don't have to think about other things in my life. But yes, you're right. I, I may be a dad by now. Um, I'm probably not. The due date is the 23rd officially, and apparently first ones are usually late. Uh, so give me one more week uh, on that one. And if my latest addition to the family turns up having four legs, I'm going to be absolutely having a mad panic. Uh, <laughs> but congratulations on your cat. I think realistically, we all know that cat videos probably do better than finance videos on YouTube. And let's be honest, this third member of the podcasting family has probably, well, it probably gets fewer numbers wrong than Paul does. Probably true, yeah, probably true. Uh, Markets-wise, I'm feeling, oh, I'm feeling okay. I haven't looked at them very much. They seem down quite a bit, but I'm all right with that because I kind of want to buy stuff. They're up a bit today, um, but it's sort of weird. We were saying just before I came on, looking at the stuff that's really come up on my portfolio today, it had gone down so far that I sort of still think it's in decent buying territory, even with a sort of 5%, 4%, 3% push in some of these cases. Yeah, same. Uh, we were just talking off air before we came on. I was looking at Roku saying, oh, wow, it's up 11.72% today. You flick it to that five day, it's actually down 17.22%. So even though they're up a lot today, they're still down a lot on the old five day chart. So uh, still plenty of opportunities out there, Steve. Uh, um, I've nearly put some money in yesterday i was i think i messaged you about 20 to 9 saying like the fingers on the fingers on the on the button ready to make a deposit but now i've held out i'm sticking i'm i'm, I'm i think i've mentioned on the podcast many times that money seems to burn a hole in my pocket but i'm sticking to my regular deposits which will be on my payday but i am i am itching for payday at the moment i, I believe you. in you i believe in you if you can get to 20 to 9 you can get through that last 20 minutes and then the market's closed and you can think about something else like the fact you have a job to do or something tomorrow it, i mean it's quite easy when you've got a kitten having mad hour because 20 minutes <laughs> can just absolutely fly by but yeah 
it's uh, interesting times at the moment. Something like that will be perfect. I'm looking forward to not knowing what time of day it is and which market is or isn't open at all. Um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, and whether you've had any sleep over yeah. the last 48 hours. I mean, it won't matter because I won't have any money by the sound of it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as you said earlier, Steve, uh, there's been some interesting stuff from central banks in both the UK and the US. With We're very UK-themed this week, but there's been some... News about hiking interest rates. The US has hiked interest rates. The Bank of England has raised interest rates. Even the EU's raising interest rates, Steve. It's all happening. What do you think about this? Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? That's the thing. Um, we was just talking off air how all the inflation figures across the world seem to be tracking each other quite nicely. Um, we're having eights, eights across the board, uh, although Australia reckons they're only going to get seven. Um but um, interest rates—it's just a really interesting time to be in the markets. If you if you started in the last twelve months or so and you uh, and you've stuck it out till now, you've you've had a lot of bad news. Um, you know, as many bad things you can have. Well, last twenty-four months, if you want to stick COVID in there, or however long ago that was, it feels like it was like March or something. But it's probably been three years, hasn't it? <laughs> But yeah, talk about bad news, massive inflation, interest rate hikes, recessions and and a worldwide pandemic and then uh, the Suez Canal being blocked. I mean, what a crazy period of time uh, we've had. So, I mean, uh, I guess inflation is something we've said from the beginning when you factor all of those things in and the massive stimulus checks that happened and the supply chains getting whacked left, right and centre. Inflation was always going to happen. We didn't think it was going to happen like this and this kind of severity. But it is nice to see that at least the uh, the central banks and, and the Fed are, are trying to take some responsibility and, and not just let it run wild. They're, they're trying to settle it. Whether these are the right tools or not, I'm not so sure. I'm not really, it's not my place to really say on that. Um, but it, it is interesting to see people making moves. Steve, have you got the figures for what they're, what they're actually doing? Yeah, so I have them here, by the way. When you were listing your uh, great long list of macro things that have been going on with the Suez Canal and other things contributing to inflation, since this is a, a UK-themed week, I feel like I should make a Faulty Towers joke here for you and congratulate you on not mentioning the war. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the war! <laughs> yeah, Jesus, the war! Yeah, the war as well, and the threat of wealth war, and the China and America are in in constant trade war and sanctioning each other. Yeah, there's been more. There's been more stuff. Mm, uh, the the algo must hate us by now. No one's watching this show yeah. anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, just as we're about to get a sponsor. Oh yeah, that, that show did terrible because um, yeah, we we basically listed all the things that Google banned. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Um, but yes, anyway, sorry, numbers about uh, hikes and so on. Um, the EU, let's start there because, well, they're the sort of least interesting one, at least to my mind anyway. They've announced that they are finally going to get round to hiking some interest rates. They're going to raise them by a quarter of a percent um, and they're going to stop buying bonds just before that. So the thing that everyone else was doing uh, several months ago, now the EU's decided is probably a good idea too. Uh, over in the US, there's a 0.75% basis point hike coming. The UK is raising interest rates to 1.25%. Uh, a couple of thoughts on this then very quickly from me. When the US hikes, the UK hikes, because otherwise the currency goes to uh, hell in a handbasket, basically, is what goes on there. It looks to me like sometimes they'll hike ahead of it to try and get in front of things if they think there's a, a rate hike coming. But realistically, when the dollar goes, uh, when interest rates get pushed in the US, the interest rates get pushed in the UK. Otherwise, the pound would go to um, sod all, basically. Um, th uh, thoughts on that, Steve? 
Yeah, and that's just because the US is presumably the reserve currency and uh, whatever happens in the US has to happen abroad. Uh, abroad, and, uh, and it's not just in the UK that we're seeing that. I mean, if the EU are raising as well when they're notoriously... Uh, Quite, quite sort of dovish against um, against raising interest rates. But we're seeing Australia raising as well. They've just raised to 0.85 this month. So it looks like everybody is taking the same step here. So, um, I mean, I just hope it... I hope it... Well, it'd be nice to have some good news for once, wouldn't it? I guess after all the stuff I just listed earlier that got us demonetised, but we're not even monetised in the first place, but extra demonetised. Mm, yeah, we now owe them money. Um, 0.75, Steve, you said was more than you were expecting? Uh, yeah, only because I just, at the beginning, um, Jerome Powell was saying 0.5, and he seems quite, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, he's, he's not known for keeping to anything he says, uh, he's not really done that at all, has he, uh, over the last sort of couple of years, um, but I, I just thought with this policy, this seemed to be the thing that they didn't want to announce, so I thought they were going to stick to it, that was my idea, I, I didn't have any thoughts about whether 0.5 or 0.75 would be any better, uh, but it, you know, it's not It's not up to us, but 0.75 was what um, Brennard was asking for when, uh, is it Leo Brennard, when she, was it she for he festered, they were asking for 0.75 hikes, and, uh, and, and they went for 0.5, and, and obviously now they're going for 0.75, that looks like that may have been the wrong choice at the beginning. Uh, do you think this will curb inflation, Steve, or it's just impossible to tell, isn't it? Well, it feels like the Fed, as we've been saying on this show for some time, is trying to balance a very difficult sort of um, operation, and it might be impossible to balance it, right? So if they raise rates too fast, they will kick the US into a recession. If they raise them too slowly, they won't bring down inflation. Uh, so presumably a 0.75 rate hike is an admission that they've not been raising them fast enough. Um, I have a couple of thoughts here that are similar to yours. So my YouTube feed at the moment appears to be full of people, uh, commentators on this sort of thing, treating Fed interest rate hikes like an auction. So one person says they're going to be 0.5 and another person says they're going to be 0.75. And I heard someone say they were going to be a whole percentage point um, at, at one stage. Seems like at the start of the year, people were bidding on how many rate hikes they thought they were going to be. Um, and now they just seem to be wanting to bid on how uh, sharp each one's going to be in each situation. If it were me, I would be thinking about hiking faster to deal with inflation. I've heard um, that the history tends to indicate that the recessions brought on by Fed rate hikes, rather than other problems, tend mm. to be shallower and tend to be shorter. So if I were a US citizen, and it would probably depend on which kind of US citizen I was, to be honest, but as a sort of general non-specific uh, one, I would say something like, I would rather get this out the way with uh, and try and get the thing stabilised and get the thing moving again um, after uh, having brought inflation down rather than be constantly trying to uh, push rates to try and deal with this stuff. You made the point about Powell doing what he said he's doing and there's a word that I keep hearing thrown around here by Mohamed Alerian who I respect quite a lot in these matters he talks about Fed credibility and he thinks they have an issue with credibility and he was thinking that a big rate hike would help restore Fed credibility the grounds for that was something along the lines of saying look it shows they're serious about doing what needs to be done to tackle mm. inflation right so they're not afraid to push the big hike if they really feel they have to they've said they want inflation under control here's them doing what it takes to do that uh, or showing willingness to do whatever it takes to do that. I kind of see this credibility thing as double-edged a little bit, to be honest. It sort of makes me think that uh, a big rate hike is an admission that we weren't fixing this problem with small rate hikes. 
which gives me something of a credibility issue because the more they keep hiking and the faster they keep hiking and the deeper, or deeper, sharper, higher, whatever, uh, th they keep hiking here, the more it feels to me like they're whacking a panic button uh, or getting closer and closer to whacking a panic button because... As you pointed out, inflation is uh, indicating that prices are up around 8% from where they were a year ago. It's not slowing things down. The target is supposed to be somewhere around 2, I think. Yeah, uh, and it's definitely not 2 at the moment. It's it, it's at 8. And, and I, think I, I think I understand that argument. I think part of... Um, well, they, 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 earlier on, they tried the megaphone approach, didn't they, with inflation? They basically tried to tell you that there wasn't going to be any inflation. So if the Fed is a supremely credible being, then perhaps the megaphone approach of actually not doing anything and just saying everything's all right can actually make the market okay. Uh, but as the market loses credibility, uh, sorry, as the Fed loses credibility and the market reacts in different ways and the inflation reacts in different ways, and I suppose he's right in that the Fed does lose credibility and it's supposed to be an apolitical organisation. It's supposed to do what's best for the economy. So I, I guess best for the economy and best for the people at the moment is to get inflation down. I think that would be tricky for us to to deny that. Uh, and at the moment, the only tool they seem to have, uh, well, the two tools that they have is quantitative tightening and uh, raising the interest rates. And, and they're doing both of them. So it's hard to it's hard to criticize. Um I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. I mean, we'll be having this conversation in another quarter's time and we'll, we, we may have completely different inflation numbers. Um, I was expecting to see it coming down, to be honest. But as investors, the, the investing mindset is almost definitely to uh, to have a little bit and look forward to a little bit of prolonged pain because this prolonged pain that we have now where there's a lot of uncertainty in the market, a lot of uncertainty over the inflation numbers is driving some prices of some fantastic companies down to reasonable values. And it's our job to buy these companies at these prices, find them, buy them and hold them. Um, so we don't want it over too fast. As much as it is horrible logging in and seeing those 5 and 10% red days or whatever there was over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, if you're early in your investing career, these are, like we said last last week or the week before, these are gifts. And uh, if we can string this out a lot longer so we can get all of our, you know, as much money as we can in the market and buy as much as we can, we should do really, really well in the long run. Yeah, you're right. I mean, here's how I'm sort of thinking about things. Um, I receive dividends every so often, not at the rate that Paul does particularly. I'm not as enthusiastic about dividends as he is, but realistically i'm going to get dividends at a certain time at a certain level and i'm going to reinvest those dividends and the question is uh for me i think do i want the price to be high when i reinvest them or do i want the price to be low when i reinvest them i'm not planning on selling anything anytime soon particularly unless i get a glaring uh, obvious opportunity to move some money around but i'm going to get some money it's going to come either in form of a dividend or as a deposit or something like that and if i'm going to deposit uh, 200 quid and I'm going to buy uh, Meta Platform shares. Do I want one share for that or a share and a half for that? Well, that's pretty much all it comes down to from what I can see of things here. You're right though um, as kind of longish term looking investors this sort of thing is nice but in the course of, um, and it feels significant at the moment, but in the course of an investing career we're going to see a lot of quarters and we're going to see a lot of interest rates going in different directions and sometimes they'll go up and sometimes they'll go down and at the moment, it feels like a particularly difficult time. There is an awful lot of macroeconomic headwind coming through for now. But it's important, I guess, for us to try and keep our eyes on businesses and distinguish between things that are pushing down share prices and things that are making companies' lives more difficult, because there is absolutely both. 
uh, inflation is making life harder uh, for certain companies. They have to pay more for the stuff that they make their products out of if they're that kind of business. They have to try and push those uh, product, those prices sorry, through to customers who are already getting squeezed everywhere else by rising costs of everything. And it may well be that that hits company profitability, which is the kind of thing that we absolutely should uh, care about. And I was hearing on a different podcast that once all this kind of Fed, uh, QT, interest rate hiking, so on and so forth happens, there's a sort of six to, well, they were saying six to 24 month lag, which is quite a big window to fire into. But the next kind of leg down for the market, they were talking bearishly about it, is to do with uh, earnings dropping off basically, as a result of these sorts of things, as these things kind of take effect. There's the initial reaction and the shock in shop prices, and then the earnings come in, and then they're not as good as you thought they were, and everything gets downgraded, and all of a sudden a PE of 18 is a lot lower than it was before, um, basically. Yeah, just to add to that, that uh, obviously inflation affects the companies um, who are dealing with raw materials and things like that um, and, and going on from there, but uh, interest rates affect the opposite side. It's the consumer this time who uh, get a better savings rate and a worse uh, borrowing rate. So um, it's, it's double-edged double pressure there. If you was getting 3 4 5% on your savings account and you had a loan of 10%, 11 12%, the likelihood is you're going to be saving and paying off the loan rather than buying consumer discretionary things. So, yeah, definitely. Um, it's worth, when you're looking at these PEs and you're looking at forward PEs, which we, you know, we do quite often, uh, just to remind yourself that they probably will be getting downgraded uh, over the course of the next quarter, at least when, when we just see uh, exactly what's happening with the sort of UK, US and, and, and beyond that uh, economies. Hmm. Which leads us nicely on to the kind of thought that's organising this show. Uh, I was listening, as I said, to a podcast the other day. I listened to quite a few of them at the moment. Um, and they was someone on there was pointing out that they're quite bullish about the FTSE uh, at the moment, and the FTSE 100 um, specifically. The S&P's been struggling a little bit, and I thought I'd have a little look at some, some comparative metrics between those two indices for the time being. So, yeah, to date, the FTSE 100 is down around 4% when I looked. Uh, and the S&P 500 is down around 22%, which is significantly more. Um, okay, down is down, uh, and you wouldn't like to come out of your investing career at the end having lost four and a bit percent. You wouldn't consider that a good return in any means. But um, any thoughts on why that is, Steve? I had some, but what do you think? Um, I guess that it's just because of the age of the companies inside it and the, and the maturity and the... Uh, the, the, the lack of innovation, which is a Kathy Woodward, and I do apologise for using it, <laughs> but the, the, just the lack of innovation in the sector as a whole. Um, what, what are your general thoughts on it, Steve? Uh, I have two thoughts uh, for what it's worth. One is that um, the FTSE's composition is better, hand, uh, better set up to handle inflation, which is what we've been seeing on both sides of the pond. So if you're thinking 8% inflation... True. What does well in inflation? Energy stocks do well in inflation. You've seen the oil prices are through the roof because of not least the Ukraine... Uh, war um, and uh, various other things going on as well uh, and when you look at how much of each one is kind of there are oil majors on both sides obviously right there's um, ConocoPhillips Exxon and Chevron in the US and there's Shell and BP over this side but Shell and BP make up a much bigger part of the uh, FTSE than those oil majors do of the S&P so the FTSE is nine and a bit percent energy um, the S&P is two and a bit percent energy and mining is the other thing that does really well when we're looking at uh, inflationary stuff. Prices of raw materials go up. Mining stocks do better. FTSE is just under 14% mining. S&P is around 2% mining. 
Um, so the, partly the composition of the thing uh, is making a, a bit of a difference to it here. Yep, old hat businesses, cash today businesses, um, you know, don't expect any rapid growth numbers on, on top line of any of them, but expect them all to churn out a fairly consistent profit. And usually that follows with it a pretty a pretty hefty payout uh, via a dividend too, which is definitely the sort of stocks that uh, people are, are looking to uh, at the moment. So mm-hmm. I think the FTSE is, 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 a, is a kind of... Uh, Pension funds, like wet dream, I guess is what I would explain as just to get us demonetized <laughs> a little bit more uh, in that all of these companies are very stable. Uh, they all fluctuate in price, but not massively. They're growing the revenue at a respectable amount at the top, usually single digits, and they pay out usually between a 4 and 8% dividend, which is kind of all a pension fund really needs. Hmm. And if you'd like us to refer to your company as somebody's wet dream, e- email podcast at gmail.com for a rate card for our advertising prices. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, composition-wise, um, the other issue is that the S&P is very heavily exposed to tech, which tends to trade at a high multiple. Start of the year, the S&P was trading at a PE just below 23. Uh, FTSE was trading at a PE just below 15. Rising interest rates mean that valuations get squashed down a bit bigger valuations get squashed down a bit more than smaller valuations here's a uh, one final guessing question for you steve um what percent of the FTSE 100 do you think is classified as tech and i accept that sometimes it's a bit muddy exactly what counts as a tech company wow that's well i mean my default answer would be zero but i'm gonna guess this actually higher well i'm, I'm gonna go for one then it's very close it's 1.41 percent which is tech um, how about the S&P? Gosh, I would go, God, that must be... This is not I'm a just higher thinking, or lower game. <laughs> yeah, well, higher. <laughs> in my head, I'm thinking, like, you're going, like, 10, 10 no, 20, could be more. I, I'm going to go for about 25%. I don't know how high it is, to be honest. It's not a bad guess, and one thing to remember here is that stuff like Google, Meta, Tesla... Um, Amazon, which are all, I guess we would think of them as techie sort of companies, right? But they're all classified as stuff like communications yeah, or cyclical stuff, or whatever. Yeah. It's actually 29%, uh, though. Oh, still um, high. Which is a hell of a lot, which is why that has such a P- high uh, PE and why it's been struggling um, uh, a little bit. So in a kind of down year, or I suppose it seems harsh to say in a down year the FTSE does better. That just makes it seem like it's the least bad out of a bunch of stuff. I mean, there is stuff in there that is genuinely doing well. Uh, there's, uh, you can have a kind of more energy-weighted index and more mining-weighted index, an inflation-shaped, uh, I guess, kind of uh, index one way or another. It doesn't have to be kind of tech. And the point's been made a little while now that, okay, the NASDAQ is thought of as a kind of techie index, but the S&P is its a lot of stuff that's in the NASDAQ as well, uh, especially up that top end and their top 10% take up whatever percent it is. Most of those are NASDAQ-listed things. Most of them are, well, let's say tech or tech-adjacent, uh, one way or another, uh, kinds of companies. It feels, I mean, does it feel to you like the S&P got a bit kind of mm, strangely sort of concentrated into a particular kind of area? Maybe, but it, then I guess it it depends on whether you believe that the sectors that we're um, concentrating companies into are the, are the, the correct ones. They kind of just go with the headline item, don't they? So, I mean, if you was going to class, say, Amazon as retail, um, I mean, that would feel, or, or e-commerce, if that's the sector, that would feel pretty strange considering they've got a pretty big communications and marketing arm. They've got a pretty big um, sort of tech cloud computing arm. So... It, it's strange, really. I always look at these kind of sectors with a with a huge, huge grain of salt. I think there's uh, 
you know, there's there's so much more that you can derive out of it than, than just the sectors themselves. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, but looking at this kind of... Uh, by the way, people I was listening to are anticipating this kind of FTSE outperformance or FTSE strong results from mining and energy and so on to kind of continue. They're, they're bullish on the price of oil, and if you're bullish on the price of oil, the FTSE has a reasonable kind of oil concentration uh, to it. Um and that got me thinking, or got us thinking, that maybe we should look at some UK stocks then this week. And we've got loads of them. We've got three each. Uh, we've gone for what we call the good, the bad, and the ugly um, of the UK stocks. They're not all FTSE 100 ones. In fact, two of mine are not. But um, Steve, how do you feel about leading off with your uh, UK stock that you have classified as the good? Sure. Um, so the stock that I've classified as uh, as good is uh, Acado, uh, which is an odd stock. I think there's, um, I think a lot of people in the UK, especially, will have seen the um, seen their adverts, probably seen their delivery trucks available uh, around, and uh, just basically seen it as a, a competitor to uh, essentially your, your large scale supermarkets. Um, just look, having a quick look at its um, share price, a in the year today, it's down forty six point one eight percent. On the year, it's down fifty six point two four percent, and on the five year, though, it's actually up two hundred and three point six three percent. So I guess that's probably uh, an S and P market beta still. Um, there is some dilution in there as well to factor in. They raised about seven hundred million um, uh, last year, sometime I think. But generally speaking, um, Acado is not best known as a supermarket and and i will get on to know that why that is in a second but just a few of the little bits of information that i've just been pulling out during the day uh it now has a consensus rating of a buy uh and that's from 11 analysts and it's from big companies like the royal bank of canada jp morgan morgan stanley or all of them uh spending time looking at the stock consensus buy a market cap of just over six billion which is essentially chump change for the u.s mega caps that are, that are buying real estate at the moment especially when you consider it's got about 1.5 billion in cash in that so that's about three times sales uh, a company that's shown good growth previously is about 1.3 billion in debt though but again covered by cash this is a loss making company still though so you've got to remember that that, that cash coverage is is a bit fluid. Um, so Acado have something else outside of the retail, and that's really what I'd encourage you to focus on. So they have something called the Acado Smart Platform, and that has um, 10 pretty big supermarket companies on it, including Morrison's, Kroger, um, and Coles in Australia, which is one of the, the big companies out there. So this international solutions um, is growing at about 300% uh, per year at the moment. Obviously, it's not going to be able to maintain that for too long. Uh, I would I'd expect it not main, maintain it again but um you know high, high level growth so for those of you watching um on um spotify and youtube I, i'll put up a video of this hopefully if i can if i remember to edit in of an acado warehouse because you've not seen anything like it um essentially for those of you listening imagine a, a warehouse completely empty and then imagine a grid system and the robots run on top of the grid system um with about pull products from the grid and deliver it to a basket um which which is which is essentially the delivery. So um, from this, it moves to a, like a crane arm system that you've more sort of seen in, uh, if you imagine like the car um, car factories, and that obviously picks and packs all your fruit and vegetables and what have you, and and pick and, and then loads them up for um, 
for delivery. So they all run on an air traffic control system, so uh, they, they don't crash into each other, because Steve and I were calculating how fast they go, and it's it's faster than you'd expect. Um, so a collision in one of these is probably why there was a fire in an Ocado warehouse only about 16 or 18 months ago. But, um, yeah, so over the COVID um, lockdown, um, Ocado had to close because it got so busy, it actually couldn't um, fulfill uh, its its orders anymore. Bear in mind that just one warehouse uh, does about 65,000 orders a day for them. So at peak demand, that was uh, that was pretty busy. That was pretty busy. So uh, two more warehouses on the on the way. Um, but this is really, for me, this is Ocado's kind of like proof of concept. Uh, they don't really care about... The supermarket i think they're trying to run it so it's essentially break even although when you look at the figures uh, especially its gross profit figures it actually is really really efficient and could probably turn a decent profit but that's not where the money's going to be for this Ocado is basically using this as a proof of concept for the technology and for the robotics and is selling that on to other companies with with big success so uh, i was just look, quickly looking through their annual reports and um, i was looking through the tech reports as well and in january they introduced a new version of this robot because to get it up on the grid, you have to use a, a small like um, a small crane. So it's quite labour intensive to get them up onto the grid if you ever have to take them down. So they were looking at ways to try and uh, try and improve this, and they've managed to make a three D printed version of it. So it's it's five times lighter, which means it's even more energy efficient, uh, and it means that Akado can. Um, continue to provide software updates and con and parts and sell parts through their uh, 3D printing system as well. So it's a another little bit of uh, recurring revenue. So I think this is a little hidden giant, um, mm. you know, probably hiding in plain sight as well. In an interesting company, not at a terrible price. It's, it's infinitely cheaper than it was even just this time last year. Um, is it something that's interested you, Steve? It sort of is. I kind of like these interesting companies hidden by behind boring facades, right? Because I think of Ocado and I basically think of groceries and I think of low-margin stuff and I think of relatively sort of stable things. And I live in Oxford, so of course I've seen an Ocado van driving around. Uh, no, in it, not to my house, by the way, or even my street. But uh, I, I get the impression this is where probably most of them hang out. I've also seen the video that you were uh, talking about earlier. It's a really impressive bit of engineering, uh, from what I can see of it. And I like, I kind of impressed by the air traffic control system they have that stops these things because there's a lot of them and they're moving fast. They're moving at about nine miles an hour, and it looks properly efficient. It looks like the kind of thing where if you can get yourself set up with these kind of things it then becomes quite hard to kind of switch your way out of them again. So when I think of robotics, and this isn't particularly an area I know much about, I think sort of the best example being something like intuitive surgical. And their basic idea is get yourself stuck on their uh, products, get their things doing your uh, whatever service you provide, and then it's very hard for you to get away again. And because we'll basically then just sell you incrementally more and more and more things. So it's interesting. I've heard Ocado mentioned as a tech stock before. I thought that was largely the product of um, a, a, an index that has 1% tech in it if you include Ocado. Uh, and we can't have zeros, so there must be something that we can call tech somehow. But it actually mm. seems like there's some genuine tech here uh, in an interesting way then. Definitely. And and tech that um, obviously people um, abroad and in, in Europe and it's, uh, Australia, Asia and America are beginning to see too. I think this is a has a really big audience. If this is the way that, and let's be honest, this seems to be the most efficient way for them to pick groceries. That that at least I can think of. Every every square inch of this warehouse is covered by this 
this grid system with the the robots whizzing around on it. So the the bigger your warehouse, the the more space you could utilize. I mean. Uh, just off the top of my head, thinking that you could maybe even stack these on top of each other and, and keep going up if you had enough, wow. if you had enough stock keeping units. So um, potentially, this is this is the solution. When, when you imagine the warehouses of the future, when you were younger, this is probably not far away from the idea you would have come up with. Ocado, then uh, a uh, the good uh, in the FTSE 100. Uh, Ocado is a 100 stock, uh, according to Steve. Anyway, still think being the tech sector analyst for the FTSE 100 is probably the easiest and most boring job in finance, though. Um, yeah, it's a one day a one day a year kind of job, that isn't it? Pretty much. When's the earnings call, fellas? Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then we just basically report the same thing again. Uh, okay, here's my idea of a good stock uh, then for a moment. This is a cyclical, uh, strictly anyway. It's Games Workshop. Uh, it's down 35% year-to-date, the stock, and it basically designs and manufactures games equipment for stuff like Warhammer. Also produces short stories, full-length novels, digital content, cartoons, all these sorts of things. Um, and it has a nice bit of obvious protection because it's got IP around the kind of content for its games. This is something that's been popular with value investors for quite a while now, and I think that's mostly because it doesn't have any debt. Uh, it has a very nice-looking balance sheet. I've never thought it was anywhere near the right price. Um, I've looked at that stock, and it's gone up and up and up and up. And around the time we started recording um, the Playing FTSE show, back when there was four of us, remember all that? It's crowded on those shows. Um, <laughs> uh, Zach was telling me about it, and he pointed out that he'd looked at it and thought it was way too high quite a while ago, and it'd gone a hell of a lot higher. Um, but it's been coming down. It's down about, yeah, a third or so uh, year to date, and it's at something of an inflection point from what I can see of it. There's the prospect of recession on the horizon. Discretionary spending is going the wrong way. And it, I feel like it goes one of two ways, or this is a kind of proving point uh, for them. So if this goes well, uh, what this shows is that Warhammer games and indeed all these kind of miniatures and figurines and things are in fact central to people's lives and their identities in quite a lot of ways. And people can think what they like about that, right? Anyone's entitled to their own kind of harmless hobbies as far as I'm uh, concerned. And people, if they want to spend their lives devoting to these sorts of things, more power to them. Uh, but the people who like this stuff really like this stuff and really care about this stuff is the, the bull case. And whilst it looks like an obvious discretionary spend cut, I think it will be kind of closer to home for a lot of people. Uh, so the best kind of case goes here. So actually it's something that's classified as strictly a, cyclic, a cyclical, but more like a, actually functions more like a defensive. It will hold up in these kind of environments because it's closer to what people see as essential, even if they don't eat it or use it to heat their houses, basically. Thinking of similar stocks, I kind of think, and it's a different type of consumer cyclical, but we had Chris Hill on the show and his favourite stock is Starbucks, pretty much. I think Starbucks is another kind of cyclical that actually is basically a defensive because people buy coffee. They don't strictly need it, but they just can't help themselves but spend their money on it. Uh, and as Chris said, it's a legally addictive thing. I think there's a level of kind of uh, catchiness. I don't want to say addictiveness in quite the same way uh, with Games Workshop, but I think something like that will uh, make its way through. Worst case scenario, it's the first thing that gets cut when money gets a bit tight, basically, um, and their spending goes down and they wait for a kind of economic recovery and people to uh, put things back together a little bit. Uh, so disclosure then, I own this stock. I bought this at just under 62 quid a share. Um, it's down at around 61 at the time that we're recording this. But it's down a fair way from where it's been before. Uh, has a market cap of almost exactly 2 billion, net cash of around 38 million, and free cash flows of around 74.3. 
Uh, I'm kind of impressed by its massive intangible value. It has a 96 million in fixed assets and uses that to generate 148 million in operating income. That, to me, speaks to the value of its intangible force here. The point of intangibles, and I don't like paying for them as a value investor, and I don't tend to rate them very highly, but I'd like to have them uh, in a certain way. The point of a good intangible value is it lets you charge more for something that doesn't cost you that much to make. The point of Coke is that they can produce their syrups that's, well, the same or lower cost to anyone else and suddenly stick a little bit more on the price. The fact that something's generating operating income in excess of its fixed assets or annual operating income in excess of its fixed assets tells me there's a strong kind of intangible here that's uh, worth keeping in mind. Last point, uh, because Paul's not here, so it's very important that one of us draws attention to it. There's a dividend. Uh, it's a shade under three quid, uh, three, three quid, three percent. Um, that's Games Workshop. Uh, you probably know this stock already. I, I like this stock too, but I, it's not something I would buy because I'm not overly familiar with the product. But one thing I did see at the uh, last week was, um, so in the video game industry, they have something called E3. It's there every year, and it's where a lot of companies uh, do their big releases. Over COVID, E3 got cancelled, and it's been uh, sort of fairly, um, fairly missed. There's a lot of people who hate it, but it's been fairly missed. Uh, this year, though, somebody has taken uh, taken the bull by the horns and decided to compete with E3 after they said they're not going to run it again. Uh, and they ran the Summer Games Fest. Now, there was quite a large section in the Summer Games Fest for one of Games Workshop's products, which is the Warhammer Games. So uh, the 40k set had quite a lot of announcements. I think it was either four or it could have been five. It could have even been six games released, which is one of the sort of primary concerns that people have always had with Games Workshop. They say, look, you've got this fantastic um, sort of collectibles, you've got this amazing lore that, you know, that, that your fans blatantly love, but they don't seem to ever utilise it very well in the games. And it seems like they've they've kind of doubled down with that and they've licensed it out to multiple developers and there's multiple different types of Warhammer games coming. Mm. So that's, that's very interesting to see. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is I did... When you were talking, I thought I remembered reading something about Games Workshop uh, only yesterday or the day before, and it was, it's a, it was that it was just a, a lot of really nice place to work. Um, they've had a really good year, and uh, they've paid out ten million uh, pounds in bonuses um, shared amongst the staff. So um, lots of lots of happy people in um, in Games Workshops at the moment. Mm, I didn't see that. If I'd known that, I'd have written the share price down by ten million. Uh, but never mind. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think this is an interesting sort of a stock. Uh, there's a lot of talk that I'm not so sure about on the upside, particularly when it was at a higher price and people thought uh, we need to look for kind of big growthy ventures here. There's a lot of talk around kind of China and expansion and uh, things through that. There's always talk about China and expansion, by the way, when things are trading at high multiples. China isn't, as far as I can tell, not famous for being particularly respectful of stuff like intellectual property. Um, and I'm a little bit wary of that. So I'm not building in much into my thinking for that idea. I'm thinking that I wait for this to become a steadier, uh, reasonably priced thing, which I kind of think it currently is. Okay, enough about the positive stuff. Let's wind some people up because no one likes it when we talk badly about their stocks. Steve, tell me about a stock that you think is bad. Well, the bad one this week, and I'm going to apologise and advise to the boss hog because we all know he loves bowling, friend of the show. <laughs> um, but I, my bad is Hollywood Bowl, and it's a tricky one for me because I actually rate Hollywood Bowl. I think they're pretty good operators. Um, every site that they own turns a profit, 
they're trying to go digital uh, and in places they're succeeding. So um, they're trying upselling. You can book planes online. They're adding arcades. They're adding bars to the centres. Got to start listening to the Boss Hogs video on this, by the way, which yeah. is very, very good if anyone wants to go and check that out. But they are trying to drive revenue, so I, I don't mm. want to knock them too much. Metrics of face value look pretty good. 385 million market cap, which is about three times sales on a normal year. Uh, profitable, again, uh, a PE of about 17. Again, if we go back to a normal year, I'm discounting 2020 and uh, and 21 here because they were odd years for them. Uh, very much, a, very much a, essentially a, somewhere you have to go and visit. Uh, and they are trying to retain cash to shareholders at the moment. The dividend is about one and a quarter percent, 1.4 percent, something like that. Um, but my issue with them is a huge headwind, and none of it is their own doing. Uh, nobody has to go bowling. Um, it's 100% a recreational activity. In the financial climate that we find ourselves in, uh, this is a huge problem for them. So we've got cost of living squeezes in the UK. We've got rapidly rising bills. We've got potential layoffs, potential recession. Not to mention those that have cash. They're going to want to get away this year. And, and I just think that means Hollywood Bowl has a pretty tricky year or two ahead. Um, they're trying to expand internationally, but this to me seems like a smokescreen. They've essentially bought a four-lane bowling alley in Canada. Um, it's not something to get excited about at the moment. I think this is capex spend when you probably don't want to spend it. So, look, I think Hollywood Bowl has got the tools to weather this, I think. Um, but I don't want a company like this that's going to survive in a storm. I, I want them to thrive, and, and, and I just don't think Hollywood Bowl will. Interesting, Hollywood Bowl. Um, I'm trying to see. I've never been a massive fan of this, uh, for what it's worth. I, I don't particularly like the product. Where I look for kind of good in this, I wonder whether people who would like to do more expensive things are going to put up with going bowling instead for a bit uh, or something like that. Uh, that's kind of the best I can think of um, for this. I'm not a tremendous Hollywood Bowl fan. It doesn't look to me like it's a huge, um, big return on capital generating machine. I could be wrong about that. I haven't checked it out, but it looks like it has quite a lot in terms of fixed assets. Um, I feel like it's also not really central to people's existence. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I When I was in uh, some European country, I think it was Denmark, I was watching Danish Eurosport, um, and I did watch some uh, bowling on Eurosport, which was extremely controversial, uh, apparently, because apparently professional bowlers, some of them bowl with one hand and some of them put two hands on the ball and try and spin. Basically, you want to spin the ball as hard as you can. And it's much easier if you've got two hands on the ball uh, and trying to spin it with it. And some people think that shouldn't be allowed in bowling. I didn't particularly do it for me, although I enjoyed it well enough. The other thing I watched, by the way, on Danish Eurosport was a relay race of people sawing through logs. Uh, which was uh, much, much, much more fun uh, than the bowling. That sounds uh, like an incredible sport. It's, it's, I mean, incredible is the word. They basically try and cut through three different logs as a relay with three different things. Some of them have like a two-handed saw with two of them. One of them has a chainsaw, and predictably that takes them about two seconds uh, to saw through something, mm. regardless of which team they're on. And someone else has to hack it in half with an axe, basically. Um, but that, I think... Meet my new business venture, by the way, uh, where you and your family get to saw through logs for an hour or so. <laughs> I'd love to be the chainsaw guy. Can you imagine? He's like, oh, God, I did my bit in five seconds. Yeah, I mean, he basically does nothing. Um, he just pulls a lander on a chainsaw and starts it up. Um, but yeah, uh, Hollywood Bowl, it feels like it's all just kind of a bit meh to me. I think probably the best, the best thing I think about this is, well, at least 
congratulations on doing the decent thing and picking a stock that isn't an obvious target uh, because people we know actually like it. I think this is the thing. When when, when you listen to uh, investors, investor I respect, they always tell you to kind of invest in the sort of the future that you, you, you want to see. Is the future I, I want to see a busy Hollywood ball? No. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's not an interesting enough investment for me and borrowing investments can definitely um, can definitely turn up big and end it over the COVID crisis. If you go front and back, uh, probably the vast majority of um, borrowing businesses are the ones that have done, uh, have done the best factoring in obviously the drop and the rise, but is Hollywood ball going to be one of them? Uh, I don't know. For me, it just looks all bad. Yeah. Okay. Here's my bad stock. It's Fever Tree Drinks, boss. No, I'm kidding. It's not Fever Tree Drinks. <laughs> uh, I want people to like the Boss Hog stocks. <laughs> uh, Fever Tree Drinks is a very good business. Uh, I think Boss Hog sold it though, so maybe it's not. Um, but uh, check out Boss Hog's channel, by the way. It's really excellent. I listen to his stuff every single week, uh, and I mean that sincerely. Here's my bad stock. I don't have Steve's backbone, so I've picked an obvious target. It's Imperial Brands. Um, it's a cigarette company, and it's not a very good one, as far as I can tell. I think there are decent reasons for buying cigarette companies. None of them applies to Imperial Brands. With a name like Imperial Brands, you would think it had some important brands. Um, Steve, I looked up the top 10 most valuable cigarette brands uh, in the world. Would you like to guess at how many of them are owned by Imperial Brands? So I'm just Googling Imperial no. Brands now, so I feel like I, I haven't hmm. I haven't actually seen it, but I was just thinking, what on earth do Imperial Brands own? I don't even know what they actually own. So I'm going to say none. Do they own any? Uh, you are correct. The answer is, in fact, none. I was surprised by it being none because they own Gulwars, which um, I've heard of and don't smoke and have never smoked, and I thought they sounded kind of cool. But uh, no, top of the list by a country mile is Marlboro, which is owned by Philip Morris. Um, they own... They own Davidoff, but I thought that was like the the, the spray. Apparently, it's a cigarette brand. Is that also a cigarette brand? Uh, they all own kinds of stupid things, which we'll come back to in a moment from what I can see of it. But yeah, I dislike this. Uh, here's the reasons that I think you might want to own a cigarette uh, company. You have a product that is addictive, uh, without question. Um, it doesn't cost very much money to make. Um, your customers are brand loyal. Um, and there are parts of the world in which smoking is growing, by which I mean more people are smoking, not just uh, you can get more volumes by selling more of them to the same people. None of these applies to imperial brands, as far as I can see. It's smokers are brand loyal, but its brands are fairly, I mean, they're not in the top 10. I don't want to call them worthless, but uh, if you want to buy a cigarette company, buy a better one. Um, the place where the number of smokers is increasing is mostly Southern Americas or Southern and Central Americas, where Imperial Brands does relatively little of its business. If you want to find somewhere with big exposure to the areas where smoking is growing, Philip Morris has it, uh, if you want to make that kind of case. The product is um, cheap to manufacture and has high margins, apparently, anyway. Uh, last time I looked and I was looking across a fairly broad sweep of these things, Imperial Brands has gross margins of a mighty 18% and net margins of under 10 uh, so it's not huge uh, from what I can see of it. The EPS is doing reasonably well. The revenue's gone absolutely nowhere. And in fairness, the company is bringing down its debt uh, reasonably well. Um, they, I think, ought to be able to prove themselves inflation resistant, uh, at least so I thought. But they, I looked in their most recent set of uh, 
management slides from their earnings report for the half year. And they're actually concerned about inflation from what I can see of it. I thought the only point of a cigarette company was that, look, basically people will pay you whatever the hell you need for these things because they're addicted to them. Um, getting them into people's hands might be hard work, but keeping them there shouldn't be. Uh, so I'm struggling to see much that I particularly like about Imperial Brands. If I wanted to buy a cigarette company, and I don't think I do, I'd buy Philip Morris, and I would understand anyone who did, to be honest, because it's exposed to growthy vectors and so on. Just to top it off, management made a bit of a mess uh, in terms of going too hard on vaping um, and ignoring heated tobacco, and it's now trying to undo that particular mess. So that's my company I don't like. I'm Imperial Brands. Please like me. Uh, interesting website. I'm just scrolling through it now. Um, there's a fella on the front who is wearing what can only be described as a smoker's T-shirt, and he has rather yellow teeth, which is just uh, <laughs> which is all you really need to know about about smoking, isn't it? But um, I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't let everybody know that this actually has about a nine percent. Oh, it has a massive yield. dividend. It's also up about ten percent this year. Yeah. So I mean, th if you think Imperial Brands is going to be a fairly static company that's going to, you know, if it stays around the same share price forever and just pays you that 9% return, um, you know, that would be, that would be, that would be great for you. But I would just encourage you to flick to that five year chart. Uh, Imperial brands was at three, five, five, Oh, uh, five years ago. And today it's, it's half. It's at one, eight, one. Oh, so, mm. Hey, you're losing capital. You're getting a decent dividend. Um, but you've just got a factor. Is that going to, you know, at some point, is that dividend going to dry up and uh, that return diminish even more and more and more? And you're just left with a high dividend in a stock that yes, nobody wants to earn. it feels to me like they're in a bit of a bind here. They can either keep doing what they're doing, which is paying a dividend and gradually watching things decline. I think this is what someone like Aswath the Modern would have them do. They're a mature business. They're a declining business. They should basically accept their age. Or they can try to pivot, which they've been trying to do. The trouble with pivoting is it's expensive and it's competitive and it's difficult and it uses up money. So uh, Sven's video from a while ago on cigarette companies I thought was very good. And Imperial Brands, I'm not sure his criticisms apply to all the cigarette companies evenly, but I do think they apply to Imperial Brands. Um, management has been attempting to try and turn this back into a growth engine and it's been basically burning up money that could have been dividend money uh, in the process. So... I'm a little wary here. Balance sheet's coming down. Uh, balance sheet, sorry, is improving. Uh, debt coming down uh, reasonably well. That's about all I have to say for it that's good, though, unfortunately. Yeah, it's definitely not a stock that uh, I'm interested in. I was just looking at its return capital in point, though, which is actually pretty good for a company of its size. Um, but I just think... I just think it's again. It's one of those things. If you're in it, you just after. Um, if you just after getting a yield from your portfolio, this is probably the the stock for you. But uh, you know, if you're young and you're looking for uh, companies that will, you know, will be here when you retire in twenty, thirty, forty years time. Oh, I don't. I think there's better things out there. Mm. Let's let's talk about some ugly things, Steve. What have you got that's ugly? Ugly. Uh, so um, let's go full disclosure. Uh, this is actually a stock I used to own. So when I first uh, when I first started buying individual stocks, um, this was a company I I really liked. Uh, they build nice houses. They build bigger houses, um, uh, and they're very well rated. The, the company is called Crest Nicholson. Uh, they're in the two fifty. Uh, they're trading the CRST. Um, so they're kind of focused in the south and the sort of uh, Midlands kind of areas. Um, they're regarded by the Home Builders Federation as one of our best house builders. They're five-star rated. 
uh, in that department. Um, so what makes it ugly for me is is just a number of things really. Its financial performance over the last three years has been has been incredibly spotty. Uh, it has made losses and profits. Uh, it's lost quite a lot of revenue over a period when house prices, especially in the areas that they build, have been absolutely soaring. Um, it's just sacked its COO, uh, Tom Nicholson, um, said it has no plans to replace him. It's in the middle of a messy looking restructure, which, and I quote, was to increase diversity at the company, reset its operational efficiency and strengthening the balance sheet, which to me seems that's just marketing speed for that. They've dropped the ball. Uh, year to date on this stock, uh, it's down 24.5% at the moment. Uh, if you put money in this stock five years ago, you'd have about half of that original investment now. Uh, if you bought it at IPO in 2013, uh, you'd be up about 5% as of today. So that's a return of just 0.5% per year, which is worse than you would have got if you just popped it in the bank. Uh, I don't think this is a great stock for a number of reasons. I just think it looks, everything about it looks ugly at the moment. Not to say that the future doesn't look a little better than its past, but it's not a money. It's not a stock I would put my money in anymore. Mm. Um, you said you used to own this stock. For disclosure, I have never owned this stock. At least I don't think it's in any index that I own or anything like that. I've never owned it directly for sure. To the point that uh, when you told me about it earlier, I had to go and look up who it was and what it did. Um, this is your kind of area as well, uh, Steve. Where do they do all this building that's been doing so well in house prices? Bet it's near where I live. It's pretty much everywhere down south. They've got quite a lot mm. of land bank, uh, mm. although that land bank is actually decreasing as well, which is another uh, a, another issue. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty much Midlands, south, southwest, southeast. So uh, those kind of areas. Yeah, expensive areas to kind of be in at the moment then. Struggling with inflation as well? Uh, well, that would be it, but... The house, the home building industry has been pretty good at passing those costs on, remember, because, mm, you know, true. materials are going up, but as are house prices. So if you are building in, in the right place and your materials are going up, there, there is no real reason for you not to be able to pass those costs on, or at least a decent proportion of them. The issue with Crest Nicholson is is that their their revenue has been down. I mean, it halved in 20, 2020 almost, and they only recovered a little bit in 2021. And uh, look, I work in the sector. We were booming, and we still are booming now. And they're just not showing the kind of uh, results that you would expect for this sector. And I think it's, it sounds like it's a management level uh, kind of issue, this. Yeah. Um, you said they've got rid of their COO. Did you say his name was Tom Nicholson? Yes, his name is Tom Nicholson. Is I don't believe Nicholson? He is, yeah. I don't believe he's of any, uh, any actual um, sort of relation to them. He, he actually came from Bellway, I believe, which is another UK, mm -hmm. big UK home builder. So I'm not actually sure if he's... Uh, if he's an actual family member or not. Yeah, so these these turnarounds, which you kind of described it as a turnaround, not in so many words, I think, often tend to look quite ugly. Uh, so this is a really good example of a, a stock that looks sort of ugly. And it might come out of things looking better, but um, I'm not sure that this feels like... Well, I guess you need a strong idea that there's going to be something going for a, uh, a turnaround before it's worth looking at. Well... That's the problem, isn't it? Because ahead of here, there's a lot more uncertainty. There's mm. recession, there's house prices coming down. I can tell you materials are not coming down at the moment, and that's an awful scenario. To be a house builder, you don't want your uh, materials going up and your house prices coming down and uh, obviously squeezing liquidity in the financial markets. Uh, they're all really bad things for house builders. So uh, Chris Nicholson could get the right board in place and, 
as diverse as it needs to be, and they could still fail miserably. Uh, yeah, interesting. So that's um, a kind of quite a specific stock then in a general sector that's kind of not faring too badly. Home building's been kind of going okay. As you pointed out, they passed costs on fairly well. Uh, my ugly stock is kind of the opposite. I could have picked pretty much anything uh, in this industry. It's airlines, and the one I've gone for is EasyJet. So the story so far is kind of fairly familiar until recently, right? We had a pandemic. There were lots of travel restrictions. As Sven would say, things got really, really ugly. Uh, revenue went down 77%. Cost of revenue went down nothing like as much. So they ended up losing money. They spent about three years losing double what they would be making in a year before in terms of operating income. Um, and as a result, share count went up 35%. Debt went up 350%. Uh, and to follow your thought from Hollywood Bowl, I'm not blaming any of that on management uh, for what it's worth. It's really difficult to run an airline in that situation. I prepared to bullet. They did everything they could to try and stay afloat. Uh, could they have done anything quicker or differently or more efficiently? Maybe, but there's no way in the world you're laying that at the blame of, at the feet. Uh, sorry, the blame for that at the feet of management at EasyJet, from what I see of it. Um, but uh, a lot of retail investors, I think, were kind of interested in this, thinking, well, there's a pandemic on, EasyJet shares are down, the pandemic will end eventually, and then EasyJet shares will go either back up or the business will improve, because there was always hope, right? There was this hope for a kind of surge in travel demand after the pandemic. Uh, EasyJet will pay off its debts, go back to paying a dividend, and if it does pay its dividend at anything like previous levels, we're looking at a yield of around 11%, making Imperial brands look like a minnow uh, in the dividend paying things. Okay, that was the hope until fairly recently anyway. Uh, well, the good news is that part of that is happening. There is a massive surge in travel demand. The bad news is that this is not fixing EasyJet's business. If you try Googling EasyJet, pretty much all you get is loads and loads and loads of cancelled flights because having worked really hard to right-size their business for a pandemic, they now haven't got anything like the staff to cope with this surge in travel demand. And what I saw recently was, in fact, uh, increasingly, uh, you said people who with excess cash are going to want to get away. They're all struggling to do it, uh, from what I can see of it. And there is a massive surge in UK holiday uh, resorts, from what I can see, tell, because people can't fly um, because there aren't enough flights. And actually, that's true of EasyJet. That's true of um, IAG. That's true of TUI. That's true of basically all of them. But I've lined up EasyJet um, here. And there's also another massive problem uh, for them. EasyJet has two big costs, uh, from what I can see of it. Like most airlines, they are staff, and wage inflation is hurting them in the staff costs. And they are fuel. And oil prices stubbornly staying above $100 a barrel is a huge problem for them. It means their margins are not going to be anything like what they were before. They can't run the same volume. Um, and everything is not coming off the way it was supposed to be coming off for this to recover itself. So it looks to me like, again, it's difficult to be critical uh, of this business too much because I don't know what they're meant to do. Uh, and I think they, I, have, I have no complaints about how they've been run. But Christ to me, this looks ugly. The also fresh off the back of a pretty hefty data breach as well uh, back in... Um... I think it was 2019, uh, they, um, they had a, a data breach that basically exposed 9 million customers' uh, data. Um, they chose to let the information commissioner know straight away, but they didn't actually let any of the customers know for four months. So uh, there's a lot of scandal and there's actually a class action against uh, EasyJet at the moment. They're, I saw it advertising on TV the other day, so... 
they've got a potential issue on their hands there. I mean, normally I would just over overarchingly refer to that as ambulance chasing, but uh, I think four months is a long time to not tell people that potentially the payment, but definitely their address uh, information. I guess the, the the one thing you wouldn't want leaking to people who would come and rob you is the time you're going away on holiday via EasyJet for two weeks. Mm. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be pretty awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, EasyJet's one of those companies that it's in good times. It's 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 easy to like because it does what airlines do. If makes a decent amount of free cash and it chucks a lot of it into dividends and buybacks and then the minute the bad time comes it goes oh we don't have any cash oh bollocks we're going to need to dilute 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 debt raise sell our sell our airplanes and lease them back basically anything it can do to stay afloat and the and easyjet is really one of these companies that look faced with the scenario it was a worldwide pandemic. Absolutely nobody saw this coming. Uh, it's difficult to plan for something that you can't see coming. But I just wish that these airline companies, and I'm hoping that's the one thing that does come out of the pandemic for these airline companies, that they run themselves just a tiny bit more frugally. They just have a little pot, whether it's collectively that they all have to pay into a pot like the FSCS scheme or something that will that will save them when they go into some kind of crazy, crazy downward spiral. Well, downward spiral's the wrong term, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I was going to say crash, but that's even oh, yeah. worse. But yeah, when the business when the business takes a downturn. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's the big problem with, with EasyJet. And, and the problem, you could just lift that problem and you can pretty much stick it on every company in, in the world. Do you have an airline that you like, Steve? No, not really, to be honest. Um, when I was looking at these a while ago, I was looking at them in the depths of the pandemic and... From a business perspective, the one that I thought I would probably own or or I would be least least unhappy to get stuck owning uh, was Ryanair, I think. Um, I, I'm not going to buy it on principle because I don't like their business. Um, I don't like the way they are with their customers. I don't like the way um, they are with their suppliers. I dislike their model uh, intensely and I dislike their management. But if I had to get stuck with one from a financial perspective, I would go with that. How about you? Yeah, again, it's not a sector that uh, I, I have any great affection for. I guess if I was going to pick out of any, I don't mind Wiz. I think they do uh, okay. Uh, they've got a decent cash balance at the moment. I kind of hope that they would go shopping and pick mm. up some of, the, uh, some of the other little companies. But they have tried, but they've, they've not seemed to have, uh, have got anything. But they're a pretty decent low-cost airline, a ten a good profit. They seem to be run a little less sort of like uh, everything has to be zero by the end of the year, uh, unlike the other airlines. But I think Steve and I would probably, uh, and probably to sign this, this one off, um, would say to look at Aircap. I think we've always liked Aircap. Um, these are the guys who have been doing the secret business, the secret sauce during this this COVID pandemic. They've been the ones buying all of the airlines off, all of the uh, all of the struggling, um, all the aircraft off, all the struggling airlines, and they've been the one putting in the big orders with Airbus and with uh, Boeing. Uh, they're leveraged up to the eyeballs, uh, as you would expect for a company that is buying something that is essentially incredibly expensive. They're, they're almost a uh, a leasing company, aren't they? Essentially, a leasing leasing asset company um, in in this regard. But Aircap probably has a, a good future ahead of it on the proviso that it can keep its debt under control slash paid off, and you know it can keep these these aircraft running. Yeah, so Aircap is probably the best thing we can think of. I think either of us for getting the good out of the airline industry without the bad. So the good in the airline industry is that look, air travel is really important. 
people need and want to get all around the world and doing it by air is by far the most efficient way of doing it from a time perspective and from a cost perspective. The trouble with the airline industry is that everybody is busy fighting everybody else offering kind of incrementally cheaper seats because it's worth it, we've said several times now, to sell that last seat for Soddle, which means that no one else can sell seats for anything more than Soddle. Um, and you're basically shielded from that from Aircat because they're not an airline. Um, so that way would perhaps be the way to try and get the good out of um, if you're kind of bullish for air travel in general without having to try and get yourself stuck into this industry where nobody in seems to make any money. And that's it. They're not a particularly expensive company as well at the moment. They're trading at about four times um, gross profit as well, which is which is not not too bad. Uh, I'm just trying to look for a cash flow figure now, but I seem to remember they generated quite a decent amount of free cash flow. 1.9 um, billion in free cash flow. Uh, it's it's a decent amount of money that last year. Yep. And if you're wondering why neither of us has ever thought to pitch this to Paul, why Steve? Doesn't pay a dividend. Correct. Uh, I don't have it on my screen, but I know this full well. Um, anyway, that was us. That was the good, the bad and the ugly uh, of UK stops, stocks. And stops as well, but mostly stocks. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching on the Playing Footsie Show.